In the middle of the 20th century, America found itself in a new era. We had just emerged as a new international superpower after winning the Second World War. And the 1950s, for many, would be uh, marked as a time of economic prosperity. But it would also, for many, would be marked as a time of fear and anxiety. And that was due to, ironically, the very thing that helped to win the war. Well-meaning scientists had discovered the power of the atom, but of course, we would then take the opportunity to weaponize it. And after the war, that became a problem because we suddenly find that ourselves were not the only ones with the power of that weapon. So we enter a Cold War with the Soviet Union and the fear, of course, was that such a weapon would be detonated on our soil. And so we taught our school children to duck and cover under the desks at school in the case of such an event would happen. They would go through these drills. And this is the era. This is the historical context in which we are introduced to a new character, to a new hero. It was actually August of 1962 60 years ago this month, when we meet this intelligent teenage boy who was bullied, but then he was bitten by a radioactive spider. And Peter Parker becomes the amazing Spider-Man. And 60 years later, he is still a major box office draw. But the interesting thing about Spider-Man is that for the comic books and many of the movies he's in is that several of the villains that he fights actually start out as people with good intentions, people who are seeking to serve humanity through science and technology until through some fa failed experimentation that goes wrong, these men become corrupted and instead of using their power to serve humanity, they, the power serves for chaos and violence. But Peter Parker himself was not one who sought power. Power came to him. And with this, we learn the great theme of Spider-Man, quoted to him by his late Uncle Ben, who was possibly quoting the French philosopher Voltaire when he said, with great power comes great responsibility. In other words, Peter, your power is not for you. Your power is for others. Now that you have power, you also have a mission. Power and mission. And with that, with these words, we have the two major themes of Luke, both in the Gospel of Luke and in the Acts of the Apostles. Last week, Mike spoke about power, specifically through the power of the Holy Spirit. But today, We'll talk about the next major theme through Luke and Acts, and that is the Spirit-empowered mission of Jesus. But the difference between Peter Parker and Jesus is that for Peter Parker, his power gave him his mission. Without his power, he wouldn't have a mission. But Jesus, he had a mission before he had his power. 
He was born with his mission. When he was born, he was named Jesus, the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means salvation. His name is his mission. But he had his mission before he had power. And yes, Jesus was born with a divine nature, but through the incarnation, he took on the weaknesses and the limitations of a human nature. It wasn't until his baptism when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit when, is, that, is when he was empowered to carry out his mission. But what else can we say about the mission of Jesus? The Bible scholar Gordon Fee talks about his time as a professor at Wheaton College, and he taught a class on Jesus, and he taught hundreds of students, and he asked this question every time. He said, what is the central theme of the teaching and mission of Jesus? He would ask and, you know, people would write their answer down, fold it, turn it in anonymously. And he got a variety of answers over the years. Many people put love. That love is the central thing in the teaching and mission of Jesus. And while love is very important, in the Gospel of Luke and the other synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus mentions love just twice. Love God and love your neighbor. Others proposed forgiveness, that forgiveness was central to the teaching and mission of Jesus. And while forgiveness is very important, there is yet still another theme that dominates the teaching and mission of Jesus, his words and his actions, and that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. But Mark says in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus arrived in Galilee saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Here Mark is not simply quoting something that Jesus said one time, but he is encapsulating the entirety of Jesus' ministry as he goes from town to town and synagogue to synagogue. And for Luke, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in Capernaum and he's healing many people. But then afterwards he goes to, find solid, um, uh, goes to a solitary place to be alone. But then the people come looking for him to get him to stay, but he says, I can't stay. I have to go to the other towns as well to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. For that is why I was sent and with that, Jesus gives his mission statement. The purpose of him being sent is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, how should we think about the gospel of the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Perhaps the best way to think about this is to think about the story of the Hebrew scriptures. The kingdom of God begins on page one. The book of Genesis, Genesis 1, where God creates the world and he creates humanity in his own image to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion. They were to rule on behalf of his rule. They were to be representatives of this rule. So God's kingdom in creation is this, for God to rule over creation through his servant kings and queens, humanity. God's kingdom and creation is his rule over creation through his servant kings and queens, which in the beginning is a wonderful arrangement because everyone's on the same page. Everyone is doing one will, and that is the will of the one good king. 
It's a good arrangement. Everyone's on the same page. There's peace, there's shalom, there's wholeness until a deceiver, an enemy, a serpent comes saying to them, you will not surely die if you eat of this forbidden tree for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil, having the power to determine good and evil for yourself and humanity took the bait. And as a result, we have not just one king and one kingdom, but now the woman's kingdom and the man's kingdom, where they sought for their own will to be done. And today we have seven billion kingdoms on the earth, each in our own individual lives. And each of us seek for all the other kingdoms to revolve around our kingdom. But you can imagine that's a problem, right? Because if I want all the other kingdoms to be around my kingdom, and Joseph wants all the kingdoms to be around his kingdom, there's going to be conflict, a conflict of kingdoms. When my good collides with your evil, or my evil collides with your good, we have problems, we have chaos. And so it wasn't simply that humanity broke this arbitrary rule that God had given them. They had rejected their vocation to represent his rule. They had rejected God as their king. So to prevent them from eating of the tree of life, that they would live forever in this sinful condition, in these chaotic kingdoms, God evicts them from the garden. He evicts them from sacred space. But God was not content to leave things like this. He was going to get things back to how they were in the beginning, but that would be a very long process. Later in Genesis, we have in Genesis 11, people, a group of people who all spoke one language gathering in, on the plain of Shinar in one place, disobeying God, not scattering, not filling the earth and subduing it, but being on one place, uh, creating a city called Babel or Babylon. And they join in this group project of creating this tower that reached the heavens. Scholars tend to agree that this tower was what was called a ziggurat, part of a temple complex. They were trying to get back to sacred space by creating it themselves. And once again, rejecting the authority of God and rejecting God as their king. They were attempting to create this transactional religion, saying to the deity, we scratch your back, you scratch ours. It's their way of getting heaven on the hook. And so God said, well, this won't do. So he's, he confuses their languages so that they would scatter, and this creates the nations. Some theologians say that this is God disinheriting the nations from himself. But in the next chapter is that God would inherit a nation for himself as he calls a man named Abraham. And Abraham would become a great nation. His descendants would become the nation of Israel, and they would be God's inheritance. They would be his portion but first, he would liberate them from slavery in Egypt through acts of judgment and the plagues. And the final acts of, ju of judgment against Pharaoh was the death of the firstborn. And that was the plague where Pharaoh said, okay, fine, you guys go. He let the people go. And the people were spared by the blood of the Passover lamb. 
And so God took them to the wilderness to create a covenant with them, a relationship that kings would make with their people. And this was a covenant that was sealed by blood. And Moses sprinkled the blood on the people. And this covenant established God as the king of Israel. And Israel was now established as a kingdom of priests meant to represent God's rule to the nations. But centuries later, that uh, Israel would ask for a human king. We want a king that we can see. We want a king who will go before us and fight our battles, which is terribly ironic if you've ever read the book of Joshua, seeing how God fought their battles for them. But God assures the prophet Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. So God hands them over to human kings. First king was King Saul. He began okay, but did not continue and end okay. Next king is King David. And while the reign of David had its issues, David was called a man after God's own heart. If there was ever a a glory era, golden years in Israel, it was under the reign of David. And God makes a covenant, a promise to David that you'll always have someone from your lineage on the throne. And later, prophets would pick up on this, and they would envision that there would be one king from the line of David who would restore God's kingdom to Israel and to all the nations and set the world right once again. But in the centuries after David, God's people would be given over to corrupt kings who led them into idolatry, the worship of other gods, into sexual immorality, into child sacrifice and injustice, ignoring the plight of the poor, once again rejecting God as their king, not being faithful to the covenant. So once again, God evicts them from sacred space, away from the temple, away from the promised land, exiled into Babylon, the very place where God called Abraham. But the prophet Isaiah um, foresaw this. He, he saw, he anticipated the Babylonian exile, but he had this vision of people who would remain in Zion, remaining in the city of Jerusalem, wondering, has God abandoned us? But he has this vision of a, a watchman seeing a messenger in the distance. And this is where we get the verse in Isaiah 52, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet that bring good news. And what is the good news? The good news is that our God reigns. In spite of how things look now, God reigns and he's still in control. And Israel would hold out for this hope of God's coming king. And then comes Jesus, who saw himself as the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures and as the fulfillment of the Israel story. As he comes and says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Well, one way that Jesus describes his mission, we find in Luke chapter 4. It's a verse that, uh, a passage that Mike summarized last week. But in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is in Nazareth and he's at a synagogue. 
And as a you know, guest rabbi, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And this is just mere paragraphs after Jesus is baptized and anointed by the Spirit of God. It says in verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, sits down and says, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor. This word good news uh, in the gospel is, um, shares where we get the word gospel, uh, euangelion, it's where we get the word gospel. I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. What comes to your mind when you hear the word gospel? Is it a type of music? Is it the gospel truth? Is it the bare minimum things I have to believe to get to heaven? Maybe you think about something uh, about Jesus' death for sins, you know, something about the atonement, something about the resurrection. Now, those things are of utmost importance, and you'll never hear me say anything other than that. Those things are incredibly important. However, do you suppose that that is the gospel that Jesus was telling to poor people? Is he walking around saying to them, I'm going to die for your sins and rise on, from the third, on the third day? He would say this privately to his disciples, and they had no idea what he was talking about. In fact, one time, Peter says, that's not how this goes. Now, of course, those things have everything to do with Jesus' message as they unfold. But what was the gospel that Jesus said to everyone else? What was the gospel for the poor? The gospel was the kingdom of God is at hand. And I suppose I point that out maybe as a challenge to us is that as we think about the gospel, how often do we think about the kingdom of God included in that? Along with things like the atonement and Jesus' death on the cross. They have everything to do with each other. But why was this news that God's kingdom, God's reign, why was that good news for the poor? Those who were not only economically poor, although it did include them, but those who were distressed and weighed down by life circumstances. Those who knew they were utterly dependent upon God and knew that they were nothing without God. Why was that good news for them? Well, God's kingdom, God's rule means that everything will be set right. It means that there is forgiveness for sins. It means that this situation we're in where all these millions of kingdoms are in conflict with each other, often trampling the vulnerable, that is coming to an end. And that for the desperate, for the lost, and for the lonely, there is a place in God's family with God as their father, and there is a place at God's table, and that is good news. It's good news that all things will be set right. So Jesus came declaring the kingdom. But Jesus also came demonstrating the kingdom. In this passage, we read about how Jesus gives recovery to the blind because in the God's kingdom, when God rules, there is no blindness. We, in this passage, we read about Jesus giving liberty to the captives, freeing people from demonic possession. Because when God rules in God's kingdom, 
evil has no power. And I can't help but wonder if the demonstration of the kingdom also includes how Jesus would eat meals and go to parties and feasts with the poor and with tax collectors and with prostitutes. Demonstrating that there's a place for everyone at the table if they only receive and respond to the invitation. Jesus declares the kingdom. He demonstrates the kingdom. He also delivers the kingdom. He delivers the kingdom. How? Well, if God's kingdom is about God's rule over creation through his servant kings and queens, he's going to have to liberate them. He's going to have to offer redemption to them and forgiveness. He's going to have to save them. He's going to have to remove the condemnation that they have earned for their sins from them. And how is that possible? How does that happen? Well, that happens through him taking their place. It happens through substitution. John Stott says that the nature of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And so to borrow the imagery from this passage in Luke 4, Jesus rescues us from our spiritual poverty by becoming impoverished himself. Paul writes that though Jesus was rich, he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And that is good news for the poor. I recently heard a story about a woman who was dying. She was on her deathbed. Her eyes were closed, but not quite dead yet. And it's a very poor woman. And her loved ones who surrounded her bed talked about just what a hard life she had, how much suffering she went through, and how she had lost her husband in the year, years before, and how it's just such a shame that she died poor. And at that, her eyes opened, and she said, Poor? Who calls me poor? I tell you, I am rich. And when I pass, I will stand before the Lord as bold as a lion. It's good news for the poor. But it's because Jesus became poor for us. Jesus releases us from our spiritual captivity, our spiritual imprisonment, by becoming arrested, by becoming chained, by becoming led away at the tip of a spear for us. Jesus rescues us from our spiritual blindness by becoming plunged into darkness. Jesus here says, I come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is connected to the language of Jubilee, this time in the Old Testament where debts were forgiven and slaves were freed. Jesus rescues us from our spiritual debt by being rich in grace. He saves us from our spiritual slavery by dying the death reserved for rebels and slaves. But not only that, he comes to bring us into his kingdom by overthrowing another kingdom. The Bible calls Satan the the God of this world, the prince of the power and the ruler of the air. And when at his temptation, when Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms, if he'll only bow down to him, Jesus refuses the temptation, but he doesn't contend the point that the kingdoms belong to Satan. But Jesus comes to overthrow that kingdom. 
Paul says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God through his Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That word redemption is about liberating slaves. Jesus here is leading a new exodus. Last week, Mike talked about the transfiguration Transfiguration, the time where Peter, James, and John were on a mountain with Jesus. They were surrounded by a cloud, and Jesus' clothes were gleaming, brighter than anyone could dye clothes. And he was speaking to Moses and Elijah. And in Luke's version, he talks to them about his departure. That word departure in the Greek is the word exodus. He's leading a new exodus. And when the time comes for Jesus to have his last meal with his disciples, Luke says that it happened on the night that the Passover lamb was slain. And Jesus says, as he breaks bread, this is my body broken for you. And as he takes the cup, he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. So just as God liberated Israel through the Passover lamb as he took them into the wilderness to create a covenant sealed by blood with them and to establish himself as king. Jesus is establishing a new covenant with his people through his blood to be established as their king. The imagery is all there. The crown of thorns, the sign on the cross that said this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And as he was raised onto the cross, it was this, as if this, it was this mock enthronement of a false king. But the irony here is that the one who they mocked as a false king was indeed the true king. The one to whom they said, if he's the true king, let him come down and save himself from that cross. Well, he didn't save himself from that cross because he was the true king. Because he was establishing a kingdom for himself. And when no one else could see it, when no one else in Israel had a, the, the category of a dying Messiah, through the eyes of faith, a rebel crucified next to Jesus sees him for who he is in spite of his derelict condition. He sees him and he says, Jesus, you are the king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I assure you today you will walk with me in the king's garden. But after that, of course, is the resurrection where Jesus overcomes death. He disarms the one who had the power of death and destroyed him. Jesus overcomes death because in God's kingdom there is no death. Through this, he inaugurates his kingdom. And so that brings, of course, the question, which Mike addressed last week, but the question is, is the kingdom a present or a future reality? Is it already here or are we still waiting for it? And the answer is, yes. Yes, it is both a present and a future reality. The language theologians use, it is already and not yet. It is already inaugurated, which that has already begun, but it is not yet consummated. It is not yet in its full expression. And of course, the, the classic illustration of this I'll share. It's not new. I'm sure most of you have heard it. I'm sharing it for the sake of the four of you who haven't heard it. 
It comes from Oscar Coleman, a theologian, who um, talks about D-Day. You know about D-Day, right? In World War II. Who can tell me the date of D-Day? I'm hearing mutterings of June 6, 1944. That's right. Most of us know the date of D-Day. It's the, the day where the greatest armada in human history, huge armies of the Allied forces came and stormed the beaches of Normandy and France to take territory from the Nazi regime. They came upon it, won the battle, planted flags on five different beachheads saying, this is our territory. And historians agree that this was the de determining day of the war, that the outcome of the war was determined on that day. There was no turning back. The victory was secure. However, V-Day or V-E-Day, Victory in Europe Day, when the, the war was finally over, was not June 7th, 1944. It was not the next day. Does anyone know the date of that? Okay, so I heard the June 6th one, but... May 8th, there you go. May 8th, 1945. I didn't know it. I had to look it up. We'll call it Ocho de Mayo to remember it, right? May 8th, 1945, 11 months later. The victory was secured on June 6th, 1944, but not yet fully realized, not yet in fullness. The war was not over until May 8th, 1945. That's 11 months. And in those 11 months, more Americans died in the war than through any other part of the war. So although the outcome was sealed, it was determined, there were still battles and there was still death. What does it have to do with the kingdom of God? The, crest, the, the cross of Christ and the resurrection is D-Day. It's God planting a flag on this planet saying, this is mine. But V-Day is still to come. And in the meantime, there will still be battles and hardships for God's people. There will even be death. But the victory is secured. The victory is secured. But God has invited us to be part of the mop-up operation. And part of that mop-up operation, of course, begins in the book of Acts. As Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples. To go and to do what he had been doing to declare and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Because once again, here, you know, with, with Spider-Man, it was, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. But in God's economy, it's also true that with great responsibility comes great power. God will equip you to what he calls you. So the disciples... They go and they are empowered by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down, but not like a dove in the baptism of Jesus and not as a radioactive spider. But the Spirit comes in the form of a rushing wind and tongues of fire over their heads, enabling them to speak the various languages of the crowds. This, there, there was this crowd who was in town for the Feast of Pentecost, Jewish people who lived in the surrounding nations and spoke the languages of those nations. But here the disciples... 
not taking, not downloading the Rosetta Stone app or anything like that, but the Spirit empowered them to speak these languages and to declare the good news. And Peter declared the good news of King Jesus. And many of them believed that day, up to 3,000, so that after the festival, these people would go home back to these nations with good news. Many call Pentecost the reversal of Babel. At Babel, the languages were confused. At Pentecost, they were understood. At Babel, the nation, God disinherited the nations. At Pentecost, he's bringing them back. And now, it's not surprising that Jesus would um, invite his disciples, Peter and the gang, to continue his mission. But then God does something very surprising in using this other vessel for his mission, a guy who was trying to destroy this kingdom movement, a man named Saul. So Saul saw the light, was blinded by the light, but then regained his ability to see as God called him to his mission. And Paul would then go on to do the same, to declare the kingdom of God and to demonstrate it through, uh, through signs and wonders and through healing. And he did this throughout his life. The last thing we read about in Acts chapter 28 is that Paul's under house arrest. He's in a rented house for two years. And the very last verse says that everyone who came to him, Paul with boldness and without hindrance, preached the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is for us today. The same mission, the same spirit, we are to declare the good news of the kingdom, preaching the forgiveness of sins, that all things will be set right through Jesus, inviting anyone who, to come to him and to demonstrate this kingdom. Demonstrate it by healing the sick, praying for the sick, praying for healing. And in the coming weeks at Apex, we'll hear about how that has happened here at Apex very recently. And we, perhaps we might demonstrate it by inviting people to our table, as the Journey House Church did, sharing the table with them, inviting them, telling them there's a place for you at the table, there's a place for you in the family and in the kingdom of God. He's invited us to be part of this mop-up operation. But as we do this, as we do this, you know, Peter calls us, Israel was called a kingdom of priests. Peter later in 1 Peter, calls us a royal priesthood who was commissioned to declare the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. As we go and do this, Jesus has given us a prayer to help us to focus. And it's a prayer that I fear has become, it's so familiar, it's almost so rote, it almost becomes like the alphabet but it's a prayer that begins, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. I would propose that that can operate for us as a prayer of repentance. Why? Because it's not natural for us to say your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Our default, hallowed be my name, my kingdom, my will. 
my agenda, my goals, my hopes, my dreams, my desires, my stuff. It is a prayer of repentance to say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. It is to relinquish our grasp of our own kingdoms. I think this is what Jesus means when he says, to find your life, you must lose it. And so if it is true that God is our king, it means that we own nothing. If we are to represent his rule, we are like gardeners who work a garden, but we do not own the garden. It's about stewardship. We own nothing. Everything we can own, everything we can hold in our hands is part of creation, and God owns everything in creation. We own nothing. Our possessions and our money is not ours. And Jesus warns about this. You know, Jesus is not against wealth and possessions in of themselves, but what he is against is our possessions owning us. And he knows that it is so common that we have this proclivity to allow our possessions to own us because we are trying to secure our life. And Jesus says that it is in me that your life is secured. Our possessions are not ours. Our time is not ours. And the older I get, the more I realize that time is a precious commodity. I promise you, yesterday I was 17 years old. And since it's August, I was probably getting ready for two-a-day football practices. And today, when I woke up, I got four kids, and my oldest is almost as tall as my wife. How did this happen? It goes so fast. And And the rumor is, the older you get, the faster it goes. It's a precious commodity. And I think as I look at my life, I've wasted so much of it. God, help me use my time for his kingdom, because I... It's not my time. How am I stewarding it? Perhaps you can relate. As parents, our children are not our own. And I think at one level we know that, but there is such a way that we can parent where we act as if we do own them. We want our will to be done in their life instead of God's. We make our will primary. And, when, and often as we, you know, discipline, we, we get frustrated, we get angry, but it's not because they have broken God's law, that not that they have offended God, but it's because we ourselves are offended. How dare this child have the audacity to disobey me? In that moment, we are saying, hallowed be my name. You will not besmirch the name of this king in this house. Parenting is about the kingdom. It's an ambassador kind of thing. We, God has given us our children to, for discipleship, to launch them into this world like arrows for the kingdom of God. And so as we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are recognizing that in these things in a thousand other ways, a thousand other places where we have authority, none of it belongs to us. And it's about the kingdom. And repentance is about releasing 
and letting go of our kingdom in exchange for a better one. But let me give one last word on repentance as we wrap up. Jesus came saying, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe this good news. Repentance is the, the appropriate response to the good news that the kingdom has come. And this is illustrated in Luke, in Luke chapter 19, as Jesus enters the town of Jericho. In Jericho, there is a man named Zacchaeus who is rich and who is a tax collector. And tax collectors in this culture, in the first century in Israel, were not exactly popular. In fact, they were hated because they worked for the enemy. They worked for Rome. You guys are traitors and you're benefiting from taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. And so, in one way or another, in his time as a tax collector, whether it was verbal or whether it was the way that he was treated... People were calling Zacchaeus to repent. Repent, you scum. Friendless, probably excommunicated from the synagogue. But he hears that Jesus is coming and he wanted to see him. But knowing that he was a short guy, a wee man, he knew he wouldn't be able to work his way through the crowd. There was a great crowd around him. He wasn't going to get a front row seat there. So he anticipates the path that Jesus is walking, and he climbs a sycamore tree. And Jesus comes up to the sycamore tree and says, Zacchaeus, repent, you spineless lizard. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. He invites him to dinner. And to eat with someone was to associate with them, to religiously identify with them, to accept them. And Zacchaeus came down and received him joyfully. Oh, the crowd loved this. What's he doing hanging out with this sinner? But Zacchaeus stood and said, look, Lord, half my possessions I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I pay them back and I'll quadruple it. What's going on here? Something inside of Zacchaeus has changed and it's working its way outside by his actions. Why? Jesus here on this day, through his love and acceptance of Jesus, had produced something that all the hate and condemnation and the cause of repentance from Jericho had not done. All the hate and condemnation and cause for repentance for Zacchaeus had not worked, but it was the love and acceptance of Jesus. Zacchaeus did not repent to earn the acceptance of Jesus. He already had it. He repented in response to the acceptance of Jesus. And that's very important for us to remember. As we pray, your kingdom come, your kingdom overthrow my kingdom, it's not out of duty, it's not out of guilt, it's out of the joy of the good news of God's reign. So as we end, the band's gonna come. We wanna invite you to pray today.
You know how it goes. Middle carpets are for those who invite others to pray with you. The outer carpets are for those who just want it to be between you and God. But maybe you're here today and you're recognizing that there's an area in your life, whether it's your work, your relationships, your neighborhood, your parenting, your time, your money, your possessions. There's some area in your life where you still know that it's about my will be done. And maybe today you've heard about the good news of the kingdom and the good news and the, and the grace of Jesus. And, you, and you're, you know that your fingers want to loosen up so that you can say, Lord, your will be done for the glory of your kingdom. So if that's you, we invite you to come today.